0: How do we provide culturally and linguistically appropriate mental health care? We just need to find someone who can speak the right language of the patient, right?
1: I keep saying this is why we need more mental services that are by BIPOC people for BIPOC people. I, I had that conversation where it's this partner with you know, your local health club. It takes more than hiring a person that's bilingual. By BIPOC, or BIPOC, I think it's a very holistic way that we approach it and and it's been working and I feel like it takes more time. It it definitely does take more time.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you not just a body system. Let's learn together. I don't have to tell you this. Mental health care is facing significant challenges. Two of the main issues are issues of accessibility, finding the right person if you can find any person that can provide counseling and therapy. And the second issue of affordability, if your insurance covers the right therapy that allows you to get the help you need. We're going to focus on another aspect today though, approachability, because seeking or finding mental health care can be intimidating. The complexity of mental health is amplified in many cultures where even the definition of what mental health is, is elusive. For many, mental health is the fear of being labeled as quote-unquote crazy, because it is primarily associated with psychosis and institutionalization rather than the more common struggles of anxiety and depression that many feel and witness all around them. On top of that, the stigma surrounding mental health prevents many from admitting they need help, fearing judgment sometimes from their own families. And if you manage to overcome all of those hurdles and actually seek care, you find a system that's complicated, rigid, and formal. It's still hard. You're going to hear solutions to this problem of approachability from Fernanda, the Executive Director of the Hispanic Business Professional Association. And she has dedicated her life to advocating for family healing and culturally responsive mental health. She talks about a radically different solution, focusing on the reality and practicality of providing mental health care in Latino communities. Because I've thought about mental health so much, and the solutions to this problem seem daunting. But Fernanda presents something that's worked for the communities that she's part of that I think we could all learn from. We've broken this conversation into two episodes. This episode you're listening to will cover her personal experience with depression and being a mother to a child with complex needs. And how that journey taught her the importance of being vocal about one's struggles without shame and acknowledging the toll caring for others can take on a caregiver's mental health. With her personal experience, she'll also share how she has transformed communities by building essential services such as peer support. Peer support. It could be the answer to so many problems that we witness. She describes a holistic model that is based on this, connecting individuals with peers providing a safe space for conversations, and then, only then, introducing professional mental health services. As she said at the beginning, it's much, much more than just hiring a bilingual person. Here's Fernanda. Hey, buenas Fernanda. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, good morning. I'm
0: excited to have you with us today to specifically talk about mental health. In the Latina community. And before we start, tell me about yourself and your story.
1: My name is Fernanda Mascot. I live in the state of Washington. I have lived in Arizona as well. And I've always been involved in mental health and social services, either volunteering or work. I actually started volunteering when I was in high school with a local nonprofit that was centered around behavioral health and mental health for Hispanic Latinos. And that's how I started being involved and understanding that I was not alone, because that was the reason why I started volunteering there. So so that's how I started getting involved more in that topic. All the social workers there were from Latino America, from Mexico. And then that's how I got into social work. I have my undergrad in social work, and I have been trying to get my master's, and life always happens. I try not to be hard on myself. that's a little bit about me. I do have a child with complex medical needs. I'm a very big advocate for caregivers, for parents. that have have children with complex medical needs because that makes a huge toll on your mental health and on the whole family. And the work that I do now as an executive director for a nonprofit is we do a lot of work work around that, trying to talk about what is mental health? What is self-care? And how that looks like and how it's not always clinical and how clinical is not the only solution to your mental health.
0: Yeah, those are important questions to answer. I want to ask a few follow-up questions to your story. Something that I heard was how representation was important. We hear about that a lot, seeing people that look like you in fields so you are like, yeah, I can do that. What did it mean to you to have representation and how did that help
1: you? I think it's beyond the. People look like me. Yeah, for me, it's more I look like me, but also understands where I come from, how I grew up, how I was raised, my culture, my religion, everything. That was what made a difference. The, the social workers that I had through that time, a lot of them were either born in Latino America or in Mexico. Spanish was like their first language. So they had those same obstacles than me. So they, they didn't just look like me. They understood a lot from what I had to do growing up.
0: Yeah, understanding is very important. Let's go to what mental health means to you. Because you mentioned that it's not just clinical. And I'm curious on what that means.
1: I think specifically for me, it means being able to be very vocal about it and not feel ashamed. I did go to therapy for many years. So I believe. Both, clinical and non-clinical works fantastic. But there are days where I still live with depression. And and I'm very vocal about it. Like, I have depression. I live with depression. And I think for me, it means on days that I'm very depressed. I'm very very vocal saying, hey, I'm not going to go out out today or I'm not doing that or I'm not going to join the family. I, I am depressed. I don't feel good. And it took a lot of time to have that conversation going with the family. So now my mother's, oh, okay, so is there anything that I can do for you? And I just say, no, I just, I don't want to talk to anyone. I want to be left alone this Saturday. And they understand that. That's what mental health also means to me. I think it's so important to just be so vocal about it because if I would wake up and say, hey, I have a really bad migraine, I'm not going to make it to the family function or I I had to take my medication today. My diabetes or my blood pressure is not controlled. It's just all over the place. Nobody would question that for my family. So I can wake up one day and I know it's a bad day. I know mentally it's not going to be a good day. And if we have something already planned with the family, I can send a message to my cousins or my mom and say, hey, today's not a good day. I don't feel good. I want to take care of my mental health and they are understandable so that's the conversation that we have in in our family and that's what we try to teach our clients when we have our our support groups how you need to be open about it that person doesn't understand it it's them and you can't do much at that point you can't be working on someone and working on yourself at the same time
0: yeah it takes courage to do that especially to family i feel like because for some reason it seems harder Like, people you knew really well, or somehow they won't understand or judge you for it. So I think the sense of shame that you talked about, Fernando.
1: Yeah, it does take time. I think I look back and I'm like, man, I wish I could tell my younger self this. But it it is hard, for example, with our family, with my culture, with a Mexican household, because It's the one thing that's beautiful is that, yes, we're a big family and we are in each other's business all the time. But I can't imagine myself not having that either. It's a very weird feeling. So we don't have a lot of conversations around boundaries, right? I'm like, what is boundaries? And to me, it's okay. That is such a white term. I'm not going to talk about boundaries, but there are things that we can talk about. I just feel like we need to have a better conversation around what is mental health and how you feel. For example, like in my family, the more I see my aunts, my tias, my cousins, I understand. I'm like, man, this is deeper than what we thought. Like I can say for sure, like mental health like runs in my family. I remember my grandma being very sick and I remember comments thinking like people would say she was just crazy or she was just acting up as her crazy days. So I think depression is something that runs in my family. And we're at the point where we're now having this open conversation about it.
0: That's so amazing, Fernanda. And uh, coming back to just takes courage to start that conversation, because as you noted, it comes through with the a lot of people where there's a generational understanding of maybe there's been mental illness, but people always have coined it as crazy, right? Whatever term you want to use in the language mm-hmm. that you're uh, using, so it's stigmatized within the family too of we don't talk about it because it's almost a shame to the family. Do you think that's right? How has that come about where there's a sense that there's been mental health in your own family, but we don't name it as something accepting?
1: I think it's both. I definitely think within the culture for many years, and it's still today, it's been, let's not talk about that. It's always been referred to. As a type of a weakness, I would say, or not real. And I think as a society, we see it as that's not a real thing because you can't see it. Unless somebody has like a severe mental illness, but then they refer to them as they're just crazy. But for someone that has like anxiety or depression, it's almost like it's not a real thing just because you can't see it. It's not physical.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Even in Indian communities, the granularity, to understand the different facets of mind and mental health and what that means, it's either you're okay or you're in psychosis. and anything in between, if you express it, it's weakness, mm-hmm. as you said, and trying to expand people's understanding of it is so much of the work.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, let's start with how mental health is a problem. There's so many facets to this, but I first want to talk about the problem of access even when we acknowledge that there is something with mental health that we need support with. Specifically in the Latino, Latina community, we can talk about so many burdens that communities specifically face and your family may have faced. But there's so many statistics out there that Latino individuals are less likely to receive mental health treatment. And I think the source of it is, A combination of language, stigmas that we just talked about, and financial resources. Is that true? Is there anything else that we would add to that component of how come people don't get the care they need?
1: Yeah, I think those are accurate. I think immigration status is another one. Access to mental health in general. I feel that there's a lot of work that we have to do anywhere. I think this is globally. I don't think it's just the U.S. I see it in Mexico a lot. Is It's a luxury to have that service, to have access to mental health. And it's a privilege and not everybody can have that for all kinds of reasons. I still don't think it's seen and recognized as a healthcare need, something that, that we need to do as healthcare. And For example, if you don't have health insurance, uh, and even with your health insurance, it feels so hard to find good therapy that they're going to cover. They might cover your meds and that's it, but they won't really cover like ongoing therapy or they do, yep, do a pretty high copay. Now, those that don't have health insurance, for example, folks that are undocumented, and that is a lot of folks that we see in, in, in the work that I do, I would say probably... 70 to 80% folks are undocumented. They can't afford to pay a therapist, to go to counseling. So many of them tell me I would like to. I really would, but I can't afford it. And I think that's a really big problem. I see that in Mexico. I've had friends who are psychologists and they're running another business. They're not even working as a psychologist because they can't get any clients. And they can't be doing their services for free either because they have to work. I think we know that it works because why do the privileged people get it? Every time someone who has money, who's got good status, they need therapy. They don't think about it twice. They do go to therapy. They get it. They go to counseling. But then folks that don't have that privilege, they don't get to do it. And we're not doing anything about it. We're not doing anything about it as healthcare. We're not recognizing it as health. I feel like that's so scary. The traumas that I have gone through in my life, I cannot imagine battling those on my own without help. I really cannot. And there's so many people that have to do that. They have to struggle and deal with their traumas by themselves because they can't afford mental health services. And that to me is just, it's scary. I'll go back to being a a parent of complex medical needs. I was 21 when I took my son, when my son was three months old and had his incident. And I remember we were discharged in the hospital and I came home, a 21-year-old single mom, and he was on so many machines, right? He was feeding to ventilator, oxygen. He was having seizures around the clock. I didn't know what to do. I could not believe that the hospital thought that was okay, that they let me go with this baby and all these machines and just navigate that on my own. I'm 37 right now and I look back and I'm like, I cannot believe that happened and how much that affected my mental health. And like I said, by that time, I was already working in a behavioral health. So I was more familiar. I had the access to the resources Had my friends were all social workers I was able to access those resources. So I, myself, was pretty privileged. And I just cannot imagine how that would have ended up if I had no family support, no access to those resources, or not even knowing how to navigate there. So I just think we have so much more work to do. We, We have a lot of work to do, and I don't think a lot of people realize how damaging it is that we're not really looking into better access to mental health.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so true. From everything from affordability to what you just noted about putting so much on you to figure it out on your own. Being 21 sent home with a baby that was on all these machines without the support you needed. I'm curious, when you were discharged, how did they educate you on what your future looked like and what kind of support you needed? It sounded like they put a lot on you to figure it out yourself. Is that right?
1: Yeah. They taught me how to change his feeding tube. And they taught me how to do like deep suctioning. So they taught me like how to read the machines. And then they were like, okay, that's it. Like you're on your own. They connected me with the state, which that's another problem itself. They connected me with the state. One of the case managers came out and just did the assessment. But it was the same thing. They just gave me a list of resources and made sure that I was connected with the home supply companies and that's all they said and, and the education was like and I still remember this very clearly they said he's never going to be a normal child he's never going to ride the school bus he's never going to be that child that you thought do you have any other questions I didn't have any questions there and now I look at back and I'm like oh I had so many questions and I I get so upset. And that's why I started doing this. I started just being a really big advocate for mental health and for families to have complex medical needs. I go to appointments right now. I'm an executive director, but I still keep a a small caseload because I still think that my experience is needed to be heard to these parents. So I go to these appointments with them and I, I ask all these questions for the parents.
0: I think we probably underestimate what support looks like and we focus too much on the procedures, like you said, how do you change this tube? How do you connect this? And then not talk about the meaning behind it and the emotional support and having to face this by yourself every day. in Nathan's life too. And what does that look like to really support you? We say, okay, that's it. And that can be traumatizing in itself.
1: Yeah. And that's a conversation that I have had with physicians, medical providers. I meant this coalition that's, that is like fun community members and like physicians that we talk about it and that's one thing that I tell them it's it's on you it's on me it's on everybody that's involved in this healthcare system because mental health is health care so I, I understand you see it from like a doctor perspective of okay I just saved his life he's good gotta go there's gotta be more to it yeah, you know I mean? Because guess what? What's going to happen when that mom goes home and she just can't do it anymore? You know, I had so many dark thoughts at that time. I did it. I was suicidal. I did have a lot of dark thoughts. And nobody asked me, how are you doing, mom? How's your mental health? Is there anyone that we can contact? I think it took a few times where we were in and out of the hospital. There was even like a joke that by the nurses every time we would go and say, oh, you guys are back to your second home. Like we were in and out of the hospital a lot during the seven years of my son's life. And I think it took maybe three or four trips to the hospital where I remember telling like I'm done. I said, I'm going to walk out and I don't want to take this child home. I said, I'm going to walk out and I, I don't, don't know, know who you're, you're going to call or what's going to happen to me. I said, but I can't do it anymore. and. It was then that they brought this social worker, and I still remember her. And I always say she was like an angel sent to me because she was the best social worker. And she did Did a a lot of work with me. She helped me a lot. She understood. She was checking in on me when I went home. I would still call her and she would just listen. And a lot of it, she couldn't do a whole lot. Obviously, you can't make magic happen. But the fact that that I could call her and she would listen and just allow me to vent. I think that helped a lot. Unfortunately, it's 2023, and I'm still seeing it. I'm still seeing it. I went to this new case of this kid at the age of 20. She was a perfectly healthy kid. At the age of 24, she was in a car accident. And he's now in a ventilator. He's bed bound. He's his trach, G-tube. He's nonverbal. You can imagine how bad was for the parents i went there and i was looking around his machines and was mom and the planet i said okay what's the support that you have and she pulled a lot of papers and she had been doing everything herself the case management navigating like the system they weren't even getting a good response from like the medical supply company so mom was actually buying oxygen through amazon oh wow yeah it was it was insane and i was so mad because i was like really 17 years later, and this is still happening. But yes, there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Yeah, it can become a, a job in itself, organizing, coordinating, for caring for somebody. And I'm curious, Fernando, what does it mean for you to care for the caregiver, for yourself, when people have showed up? What does that look like? I think you mentioned the social worker that actually listened to you. But what else or how else should we be supporting the caregivers?
1: One thing that I think would be so helpful, and this is actually something that we're already working on a local level here where I live with some moms, we have a support group. And between all of us, we talked about it. And because I was like, what would be so helpful? Like I was trying to wrap my head around. So then I, I had coffee with this other mom and I was like, okay, am I crazy? I was like, I know I talk about this a lot. And you asked me, like, okay, so if I had a magic wand, what do you want? And she was like, this is what we need. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense because that's what we're doing. If they were to recognize like peer counseling or peer support or life coach, however you want to say it, as something that needs to be paid by Medicaid, that I think would change a lot of things because the way I see it is if there's a a family, let's just say a family, especially like a Spanish-speaking family, and they're being discharged from the hospital for something that a dramatic injury or child was born that way. A case manager through the state, they just go in and make sure that they have those services or they're connected to the supplies. A life coach or a peer support like myself would go in there and offer maybe three months of intense case management. We go, we assess the house. Okay. This is what you're going to need. You need a binder. You need a planner. You need a board on the wall. You're going to be expecting like all this happening and just really support the parent and, and help them be an advocate for themselves. Like we are now, because it took us years to get to this point. And I think that would be very beneficial because yes, it is a job itself and it's just not fair that we have to be the social worker case manager for our own child when we're trying to comfort him, we're trying to be mom and dad, grandma, and we're and we can't do that because we have to do the work, the case management work itself. and by the time we're done with all that, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you don't have a lot of energy left on in you to watch a movie with your kid. Once you're done with everything, you don't even want to be there and sit down with your child. You need a breather. You need to leave. So I would say that's the first step to the right direction is recognizing that peer support, life coaching is essential to caregivers, essential to mental health. I wish in my 20s, I would have connected with someone who had that lived experience. Yes, I did connect with a few parents, but we were all on the same boat. I wish I would have Connected with a parent who had years of experience and had the time to be like, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. This is how you advocate. If they're not calling you back, here's another agency. You fire them and go through the other agency. Just having that conversation, I think, would be very beneficial.
0: Yeah, what a beautiful solution to that sense of overwhelm when you're facing this by yourself. It's almost like when they discharge you back when you were 21, before they discharge you actually connected with the community with people at all levels through this specific journey and some people who are going to support you and be a co peer support for you as you said and maybe even some certified coaches who are going to talk to you
1: yeah so that's Just the work that we're actually like doing right now i've been very vocal about it and the other day I, i'm in this coalition and One of our physicians, okay, what do you want to do around that? And that's where I was like, oh, hold on. I'll talk to another mom. And then I came back and I was like, this is what we want. Uh, And I feel
0: like everybody can relate to that so much when you're in the depths of caregiving. On top of all the household duties that often I feel like is placed on women, now you also have the caregiver role, intensive case management and coordination role. So there's so much benefit in connecting with each other in that way.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and I don't know what it is, but we Nathan was in hospice palliative care. We had a social worker; um, she was great. And sometimes the health insurance would give me like the runaround, right? Or and they were just not solving my problems. And I could call them and say, "I'm a social worker, but I'm also the mother." So I, I just felt like they weren't taking me serious because I was a parent. And then I would just call my social worker at the at hospice, and then she would get on the phone, and it was resolved within that week, it was resolved. So it's interesting how a lot of times they just don't see the parents as a true advocate. They don't see the family as a true advocate. They wait until, oh, okay, so the state case manager calls. Okay, so now we're going to talk about it. Or, okay, so the social worker from this specific agency is calling. So now we're going to talk about it. For the minute I call, they're not even calling me back. And that's obviously unacceptable, But That is a reality that that we live in.
0: Yeah, it's so unfair that dichotomy of expecting the parents or you to be the expert of the care and learn everything, become the the case manager. And then when you make that phone call, all of a sudden you're just a parent, not the expert, quote unquote, who who knows what to do next or what's needed. Exactly. I'm, I'm curious with this, how does... The cultural nuances of being in a large mexican family and working with the latina community affect approaching this because i was thinking back to what you were saying of therapies needed often unaffordable but sometimes i feel like there's a reluctance to sharing your own personal problems to a stranger or making that commitment it seems hard it seems hard for a lot of people but especially Maybe in a community that's small, you're like maybe the therapist is actually living close to here. I don't want to tell them everything that's going on. So that I think there's this sense that exists. I don't know if you agree or how you go about framing that to get people the care they need.
1: So one thing that we've noted that has worked very well is we you have Certified peer counselors. And, and these are individuals with, with lived experiences, right? We, we do that. I myself, am myself in one. And my focus is obviously children with parents to have or caregivers. That's my focus. My other focus is also grieving and the process of grieving and how to do that. Because I, I see it in both ways. Like I, I do tell parents, okay, it's okay to grieve that one child you had. Because you, you did lose their child and you gained a new one. That's how I had to see it with me. I took time to grieve Nathan because I lost Nathan. He was a perfect, healthy baby after three months. I lost that three-month-old Nathan. So I had to allow myself to grieve him and give myself time to grieve him. But then I had a new child, so I had to relearn how to love this new child. I think it's really important to see it in, in that perspective, too. And then I've had some traumas in my life. I lost my father and my grandmother in a car accident. And I was in that car accident with them. So it was my mother, me, my dad, and my grandma. And my mom and I were the two survivors. I'm so happy that I was connected and I was already on the right track of mental health when that happened. Because I was already even taking like antidepressants at that time. I was on the right track and I just cannot imagine going through that and at this state where I was, how that would have affected me. So my peer support experience is around grieving and, and caregivers. And one thing that I think has been very helpful is we start with come and talk to a social worker. con un trabajador social. Cualquier pregunta que tenga. Any question you have. We advertise it like that. We go to businesses. Sometimes we table outside of business and we just sit there. Sometimes we have one person. Sometimes we have 10 people. And we put out their tip question about depression. Do you want to know what depression is? What is depression? What does it look like? And they come up to us and they're like, oh, a question. So we get that little conversation going. What are you curious about? Let's talk about what you are curious. Let's get there. Let's, let's answer those questions first. And then they come to our support groups. Now, it's a process, it's a step. So that's the first step. And then it's, do you want to schedule a time for you to come to the office and just have a one-on-one with me? It's not therapy. It's not counselor. I am not a licensed clinical therapist. It's just for you and me to talk. Let's just have a one-on-one conversation. I would say nine out of ten times, they always say yes to that. Because it's not like authority. It's not threatening. It's not clinical. It's just, I'm a Mexican woman. I believe in this. I believe depression is real. You obviously have some curiosity around that. So that's the second step, I would say. They come in, we have little sessions where they just vent about their life, what's going on. They feel so much better. And then they want to come back. And then that's when we start saying, hey, we also have a support group. You don't have to share. You could just go and listen to the other women or men or individuals. You could just sit there and listen to them. And then they say, yes, then they feel comfortable. If I would have said, hey, come to a support group. And the first time that I met them, they would have been like, lady, are you crazy? I'm not going to go and tell my life to a stranger. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <But> by then, <laughs> we've had that conversation and they're like, oh, okay. And then they go. And sometimes they share that first date. Sometimes they don't. And then they keep coming back. And then at that time, that is, where we start assessing. It's usually facilitated and led by uh, peer support, but then we always have a social worker there. And then that's where we start assessing. And then we know when it's more than just peer support. They need to be connected to a counselor, to a life of a therapist. It's more than just peer support at that point. And that's how we can recognize that. And we partner with a psychologist from Mexico. We do telehealth and She's fantastic. And the reason we have partnered with her from Mexico instead of, cause why not just do telehealth with someone from the United States? You know and I mean, that's a clinical Spanish speaking. I'm like, I think because she is from Mexico. And even though like our clients are not all from Mexico, they're Central American, they still have that better connection and they feel better because they feel like she definitely understands them because she didn't grow up in the U S. She's from Mexico. She lives in Mexico. So I think they have a better connection with her, and then they do their sessions. They come into the office, we connect them, and do we step out and they do their telehealth sessions with her. So that's how we go around there. How do you come in and get their that service? You know,
0: that's such a great model because I think about what happens now, which is people first experience mental health. They are in a context of where it's been stigmatized both by society and family. So they have to have the courage to approach a healthcare system, a large one. They make an appointment with a doctor who then talks to them maybe for 5-10 minutes, then puts a referral to mental health, and they have to figure out a therapist that is maybe available, probably not culturally or linguistically similar, and then make an appointment, and then face authority. Like the whole process is intimidating, as you noted, threatening and very clinical. I love what process you described is so much more approachable, right? Hey, just the first step is just come talk, like drop in and make it casual. This isn't this huge intimidating process. And then there's step by step, you help people slowly take a step towards this journey of getting the care they need because we know people need it. And I think when people, at least in big healthcare systems that I witnessed, when people don't connect with mental health, we sometimes blame them if not explicitly or implicitly, of saying, hey, must not matter enough to you or you didn't try hard enough to make that appointment with the counselor. So I liked so many parts of this process that you described, including that connection with somebody from So People have that connection from the start.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very holistic way that we approach it and and it's been working and I feel like it takes more time. It, It definitely does take more time. But that's why I keep saying this is why we need more mental services that are by BIPOC people, for BIPOC people. It takes more than just hiring a uh, bilingual person. I, I had that conversation where it's just partner with, your know, your local health club. It takes more than hiring a person that's bilingual. It, it's by BIPOC for BIPOC people
0: yeah the design of it's different when it's done that way and let's just call that out yeah with that just hiring somebody bilingual isn't enough we got to start from the start of what this whole process looks like for people to get the care they need and feel like it's being met thanks again everyone for joining me on another episode healthcare for humans if you like liked this episode as always my ask to you is please share it with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up to be part of the community And lastly, thank you to Tessa Chu for supporting this podcast, making sure it's the best it can be, and helping with the creation and the production of all parts of this podcast. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.